let's turn to scripture and, uh, and read Psalm 119 How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word I seek you with all my heart Do not let me stray from your commands I have hidden your word in my heart That I may not sin against you Praise be to you, O Lord Teach me your decrees With my lips I recount all the laws That come from your mouth I rejoice in following your statutes As one rejoices in great riches I will meditate on your precepts And consider your ways I delight in your decrees I will not neglect your word Well thank you uh, very much for having me Chris and for everyone else here I'm really delighted to be here It's, uh, it's a great privilege and honour for me to come And um, uh, only my second time in, in Tassie And I've never been to the north before So I'm very glad of that opportunity Sorry Let's stick this in your pocket and we're ringing a little bit, so yeah, you're so we'll probably need to go down a little bit on the on the on the sound thing. Um, when Chris rang up, he said uh, what what the brief was to come and speak. He was to speak on the Bible, and I thought I thought oh gosh, you know, um, I teach doctrine, which means that what I do is I tend to put the bits of the Bible together rather than look at different passages. That's what I do at the college. So I thought, well, this is an opportunity to find a piece of the scriptures that I really wanted to get into. And uh, it seemed to me that Psalm 119 was a, was a in, in, certainly in my own Christian life, it's been a neglected part of the Bible. I haven't ever really done any study of it. And yet it's the longest single chapter in the Bible. It was said uh, that there was a minister in the earlier days of, uh, of the colony of Sydney who um, he uh, had two churches and they both had uh, services on roughly the same time out at Parramatta in Sydney and so what he'd do every week he'd set the congregation to singing Psalm 119 get on his horse go down the road do the other service come back just as they were finishing singing Psalm 119 it is that long you could imagine that being possible though must have been a pretty quick service down the road um, so, but Psalm 119 is a big part of Scripture and so it must, be, must have significance and weight it must be uh, important more important than I have given it uh, credit uh, in, in my own Christian life and thinking uh, and it turns out to be a piece of the word about the word and so it's not only that we're going to look at the word but we're going to look at a piece of the word about the word uh, so I thought it was perfect uh, as a um, topic for our time together um, let's pray and ask for God's help as we look into his word that he would speak to us powerfully in it um, by his spirit would you pray with me our Lord and, and Heavenly Father, we praise you for our fellowship in your Son and for your, your undying commitment to us um, that, you, that you are so unstinting in your love for us and that you've not been a silent God but that you've spoken to us in this, in this mighty word. We pray, especially as we look at this psalm, this significant psalm which, which is so, so long and, uh, and, and seems so carefully written that you would open our eyes to it that you would um, make our hearts soft uh, that we would be open to the leading of the Spirit as we come uh, to the words uh, that are printed on this, this page, these pages and in Jesus' name we pray, Amen and So today, this morning I'm going to be looking in this first session I'll be looking at the first of, uh, of the talks there. there's an outline there that you'll see with, with five points and um, is, my, is my picture on here? Um, my slides, I hope they're helpful. If they're not, don't look at them. Um, but we'll see where we go. Um, now we're looking at verses 9 through to 16, but I want to make some, uh, some bigger comments about the whole of this particular chapter uh, as well before we, before we begin. And I want to start by asking you whether you love the Bible. Do you, do you love the Bible? Now I'm guessing because you came to the Rural Bible uh, Network Forum uh, that the Bible is uh, not uh, unimportant for you that you're uh, a kind of a, a Bible person. And so, and so you know, I, I think you'd probably say, well, yes, I, 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 the Bible's pretty good. I, I love the Bible. I hope that's certainly the case. But, but do you really love it? Do you really delight in it? Is it your heart's delight? 
See, I'm not even sure how I would answer the question. I certainly believe the Bible. I study it. I've given years of my, my life to, to, to studying this book. And um, I, I think it is true. I, I think it's authoritative. It has authority uh, like no other book. I, I even think that in this book, God speaks to us, that this is his written word. But love it? D- delight in it? It sounds all a little bit too nerdy, doesn't it? A bit nerdy, a bit sort of obsessive to say that you delight in your Bible. A bit like saying to your maths teacher that you really love your maths test book, textbook. Sorry if there's any uh, maths, any maths teachers here. Uh, there's usually one. Uh, and we, re- we really love you if you are here. And, and maybe you can come to me afterwards privately and say that you're a maths teacher. That's fine. Or perhaps it's like writing a letter to the Department of Treasury saying that thank you, thank you for letting me pay my taxes this year. And, 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 and I'm looking forward to the opportunity next year. That I, I, really, I really enjoy supporting society in this way. In fact, if there's a way I could pay more tax, I'd love to. Is that delighting in the Bible? It feels a little bit perhaps like this. Now, I don't know what your delight is in. I don't know what your heart's delight is, what people would say about you if they were asked the question, oh, what does he or she really delight in? It might be that you delight, and I hope you do, delight in your children and in your spouse, if you have one. Uh, in your work, you might delight in your work. Perhaps that's your, that, that sort of feature of your life or your passion for a sport or a hobby. Or it might be that your heart sings when you remember a certain possession that you own, that Ford or, or Holden. I, sorry if I've got the wrong one and said in the wrong order there, but that might be that your heart's delight. Or, or maybe it's a house or, or a holiday house or some, some other possession that you own or even something much less expensive than that, something in which you delight. To love something, we know, is that you give your instinctive attention to it. You don't actually have to be encouraged to do so, do you? you you're kind of just drawn to it. When you delight about in something, you think about it. You, 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 you don't need to think about delighting in it. You just think about the thing. You, it, it becomes almost a part of you, doesn't it? People who know you know that it's your delight because it shapes your waking moments, because you're always giving your attention to it. Perhaps it's irritating to them that you do this. Your direction in life too, it's governed by what you delight in. It's your whole, your whole being is somehow taken over with it. For my grandfather, he was a great Christian man, um, but his great passion really was golf. I don't know if there's any golfers here. In fact, probably if you are a passionate golfer, you're not here, you're playing golf. Um, even possibly in your mind at the moment you're playing golf. But uh, this, was, this was my grandfather's great hobby and passion. He was a printer by trade. Um, and there was nothing in which he, you know, he, he uh, would not do for his children, uh, for my father and his brothers. And uh, he, he was a devoted family man and um, a member of the Liberal Party. That was one of the things he did. But it was really golf. It was really golf that really mattered to him. He, he quite liked his grandchildren too, but I think really if you could combine the two, that was great. And so one day I was invited to caddy for him. This is perfect. I could kind of... Um, share in his delight while he played at the age of 76 after a hip operation for the C grade championship of Moore Park Golf Course uh, right in Sydney uh, he, was, he was never very good actually he only ever he had a ca- handicap in the 20s he never really was very successful but it was his delight I remember seeing the delight on his face just the instinctive delight as he completely whopped the other guy and won the C grade championship at the age of 76 uh, the crowning triumph of his entire life, it seemed uh, to him. It, the light was, in, it was on his face. It was instinctive. But to have that kind of pleasure in the Bible, could you? Feels a little intense, doesn't it? But for the guy who wrote this book, for this psalm, I should say, who wrote Psalm 119, there's no question. There's no question about really cooks his breakfast, what really boils his coffee, what really gets him up in the morning. It's the Word of God. It's not just that he likes it. It's not just that he thinks it's true. It's not just that he's, fascin- that he's uh, sort of sitting under its authority. He is fascinated and devoted to it. He delights in it. For one thing, he keeps on telling us over and over how much his heart delights. He delights in the law of God, he says. Throughout the psalm, he says this, in Psalm 16... 
And sorry, in verse 16, in verse 24, in verse 35, in verse 47, in verse 70, in verse 77, in verse 92, verse 143, and just in case you hadn't got it the first nine times or however many it was, in, in verse 174, he tells us that he delights in the law of God. But that's not all. A closer look at this psalm will show us that he's really constructed it in a loving, devoted Way which it's almost like a master craftsman um, paying close attention, a cabinet maker perhaps, building expertly and paying attention to a fine piece of furniture in the minutest of details. It's this wonderful, wonderfully constructed love song to the Word of God. It's long, but just because it's long doesn't mean it's not beautiful in the, and intricate in the details. It's a carefully made tapestry if you like. And I'm afraid this is, the only, this is the only tapestry I could find on the internet, but it's a, carefully, it's a carefully made. If you look up closely, you know one of those tapestries, if you look back, you can see this fine picture, this remarkable picture, and maybe it's enormous. But if you look up closely, you can see that each detail is lovingly and carefully, carefully done. And that is so with this very, very long psalm. Look more closely and you can see the fine handiwork that's gone into it. Well, what, what do I mean by that? Well, the first thing is that this, this psalm is an acrostic poem. An acrostic poem. What does that mean? It means that each section of the psalm begins with a letter in alphabetical order of the Hebrew alphabet. You can see that laid out in your... The NIV does this, and I think the ESV and the other versions of the Bible um, do this too. You can see that they've got a heading before each little seven or eight verse section uh, uh, and they've even in my NIV they've even typed for us the Hebrew letter and you can see that each section has a, 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 an alphabetical title to it uh, Aleph is the Hebrew word for A a Hebrew word for the, the first letter of the alphabet A it's kind of handy it sounds like Alpha and likewise B Bait that's the one we're going to look at today. Um, helpfully for us, A and B in the same order. And then, uh, unfortunately, it breaks, breaks pattern then. And the third one is Gimel. Uh, that's the letter for G. And so on, all the way through uh, to the end of the Hebrew alphabet. But that's not all. It's not just that he's given them a title. It's that each verse, get this, each verse of each section begins with the right letter. So each, which we can't, it'd be an incredible achievement to do that in English, to translate that rightly, wouldn't it? But each letter begins with the same, each verse of each section begins with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It kind of has a Dr. Seussy feel, I think. Um, I, I wouldn't like to, there, there's the Hebrew alphabet for you, uh, in case, it, it goes from right to left, of course. Uh, I used to know, I used to know that once. Um, uh, and uh, that's the letter we're looking at today, the letter Bait or the letter for B, and um, uh, I, there's Dr. Seuss, just in case you can get that. Um, it's kind of like a Dr. Seuss, you know, A is for Alpha, A is for Apple, and blah, 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 uh, but it's more grown-up than that. It's not as childish-sounding as that. It's a very clever piece of poetry, an acrostic poem beginning in alphabetical order and then each line beginning with the right letter um, in succession. But another thing about this psalm is if that's not enough. He's got eight special word words that he plays with all through the psalm. Word words. What do I mean by word words? Well, these are words that have to do with the word. Words that have to do with the word. And these, these are how our, the NIV has translated these words and, and this, is, this is how they are and you'll see how he does it in a minute. Laws, statutes, pardon me, precepts, decrees, commands, laws, plural, word and promise. Eight word words. And what does he do? In each verse, in almost every verse, one of these word words appears. Of all 176 verses, or however many it is, at least one of these word words appears every time. And you can see that in this section, entitled Bait, after the Hebrew letter for B, verse from verse 9, each verse has one of the word words. So, um, can you see them? Uh, in verse 9, it's uh, word. In verse 10, command. In verse 11, word. In verse 12, decrees. In verse 13, laws. In verse 14, statutes. In verse 15, precepts. In verse 16, decrees. So what he does... And this is even more clever. In almost every section, he manages to squeeze all eight of the word words. 
So he shuffled through the whole deck of word words every time he kind of starts a new section, starting with the same letter and then shuffling through these word words over and over. It's like a pattern of colours repeating over and over in case we don't get the point that he really, really loves what? The Word of God, right? In case we didn't get him telling us explicitly, the form of the psalm tells us implicitly that this guy is obsessive compulsive when it comes to the Word. He's really in love with it. He's obsessed by it. It's a virtuoso performance, isn't it? But it's not just a case of him showing off. It's not just a kind of technical piece of expertise that we're all supposed to go, wow, what a great clever poet you are. I think it's just that he's really... It, it, it's, not a, it's not meant to draw attention to him. I mean, he, he doesn't even tell us his name here. This guy just really, really loves the Word of God. He shows it to us. He wants us to slow down. He wants us to take it in. He wants us to share with him this burning delight with the Word of God. Now, I have to admit, though, I've always been a little bit put off by his enthusiasm. You know when someone's a little bit, just a little bit too enthusiastic for something and you kind of think, I'd like to be a little bit more reserved. It's not cool to be so over the top. I've never really got it. What's he seeing that I'm not seeing? What's he seeing that perhaps we're not seeing? I think it's partly the use of the English word law. That's put me off. And I think it seems strange to us all. What do you think of when you think of law or laws? Well, I tend to think of parking police and, and school principals. Sorry, are there any school principals here? We, we love you, really, we do. Um, and rugby referees uh, or umpires in, in the case of... Uh, I, I realise that I've, I've gone across state borders here, but rugby referees are spoiling the game by blowing the whistle all the time. Do you have the same problem in AFL with umpires? They're officious, upholding the laws, stopping everyone from having fun. For us, laws define our limits. They're the frames around our lives. They are fetters to our freedom. They're shackles on us. But the word law, or Torah, in the Old Testament has a far richer and more positive meaning than that. It doesn't just mean the rules. It doesn't just mean the kind of kill, the expression of God's killjoy nature that he wants us to not have, the pleasure that is our due. The law means, in the Bible, the whole record of God's dealing with his people. It means how he sought them out to be his people in the first place. For the psalmist, he wouldn't have just thought of the Ten Commandments and what have you. He would have thought of the whole period of the Exodus, that whole time when they weren't a period, they were a people, they were a slave people in Egypt, nobodies, and God pulled them out of Egypt, saved them remarkably, graciously, without them doing anything, without them having any uh, um, call on him, without them deserving it in any way, and established them as a people in the promised land brought them to Mount Sinai and made there a covenant with them and gave him their law telling them how he, what they were to respond how he was going to live with them and how they were going to live with, with him he called them to obey not so that he would save them he called them to obey because he had saved them he called them to obey because now they were going to live out to express the reality of their life together with God these words, which we write, yeah, they're laws, but they are words of grace. They are words of command because, first of all, they are words of promise, because they are words of redemption and salvation, and then they are words of command. I had a picture of Mount Sinai I was going to show you just to kind of... There you go. Hospitable environment, right? That's where God gave the law. But this was a gracious moment, a moment in which God expressed his his uh, tender loving care, his loving kindness, his steadfast love to, him, to his own, uh, his commitment to his own promises and his love for his people at that moment. So when he thinks law, he doesn't think referees, he doesn't think parking police, he thinks the gracious, loving kindness of God himself 
the Redeemer God. And so the word in the heart, he says, has power to keep us working in God's walking in God's ways. So I want to take you now to the text that we're going to look at now for this this uh, first session, having kind of introduced the psalm. Uh, now we're not doing all uh, all 24 sections of the psalm. I'm sorry. Um, uh, I, I offered to Chris that I could speak 24 times um, this weekend. Uh, he strangely refused, but um, maybe some other time, <laughs> next time. So, uh, so we're just kind of having a taste, you know, a sample of what uh, Psalm 119 has got to offer. But we're going to be looking more, you know, we're going to be focusing on some sections but looking again more broadly into the psalm to kind of uh, inform our, uh, us as we read it. So we're looking now at the first three verses of, um, first three or four verses there of, um, of, of uh, the second section. The word in the heart has the power to keep us walking, working in God's way. Though the psalmist doesn't make any mention of those exodus events, those marvellous events in Psalm 119, that's the background. That's the God whose word it is that he's celebrating. It's a word of grace and it's a word of power. You can see that, I think, in these first few verses. He starts out here with a very important question. Is How can a young man keep his way pure? How can the young, those who are young keep their way pure? I don't think this is a question so much for the young person. It's not a, a kind of a, a, a question for a, a young person in the moment. It's a question a young person might ask looking down the length of their life, knowing how long their life is going to extend before them, how many years they have left to live, and knowing how human frailty is sort of just a, sort of a constant factor in human life. And at that moment they're saying, how can a young person, how can they think... Possibly, how can they possibly be pure for the length of their life? The question you might ask as you see your life stretching before you. How can I, knowing the weakness of my own flesh and how vulnerable I am, hope to live in God's way? How can I hope to respond with obedience to God's call on my life? It's a powerful question, isn't it? The psalmist knows how prone he is like all of us to stray from God's way, to stray from your commands. Keeping ourselves from sin isn't within human power. Have you ever considered how impossible it is to stop ourselves from the ingrained habits of a lifetime? It's hard enough to stop biting your nails. To give away our instinctive tendency to sin is something else, our habit of twisting the truth or mastering our anger or our quarrelsomeness or our habit of tearing others down. How, how can we possibly hope to conquer those, to keep our way pure when we know our vulnerability, our, how deeply our habits stick to us? And so the psalmist says, look, I seek you with all my heart. That's verse 10, isn't it? But he knows too that he can only do that. He seeks God with all his heart. He can only do that is in verse 11. The word is hidden in his heart. It is only as he takes God's word on board that he is enabled to know what it is not to sin against God, to live the way he's supposed to, allowing the word of God to inhabit him, to take him over, to ooze from his pores is exactly the way to keep his way pure. So what does this hiding the word of God in his heart mean? Now it means, it means far more than just knowing the right answers in your local Bible trivia night, right? <laughs> Being able to answer really well in a Bible quiz. Now I'm a minister's son and, um, and so uh, like most ministers' son, I think I know everything. Well, I grew up thinking I knew everything, right? About the Bible. And I could answer rightly in many Bible quizzes. You know, I was a kind of a person who was a real pain to my scripture teachers and my Sunday school teachers. Because I knew what the right answer was, but I didn't really know it in a heartfelt way. I knew the right answer self-righteously. I knew the right answer so that I could point at other people and say, well, they're not doing the right thing. I was a school chaplain a little bit later on, uh, so um, that's God's joke on me, really. <laughs> and there were lots of ministers' kids in my school. I remember meeting with uh, a missionary's daughter. She's a wonderful, and now is a great Christian woman, full of, full of zest in life. Uh, really interesting, uh, wonderful person in lots of ways. And, and she, but she was going through a hard time. She came to me one day and said, you know, my heart is cold. I know the right answers. 
but my heart is cold my heart is cold I don't think your heart is cold now but you see your heart is a way of speaking about your intentions and your desires your very person the things you want and long for and so hiding the word of God in your heart means letting that word not just into your head but into your very being if you won the Christian Studies Prize at school. So what? If your table at the church trivia night wins the prize, so what? If you know chapter and verse, so what? Let the word into your heart, into your very being, Now, of course, knowing the Bible intellectually is really important. Knowing what it contains is the way to get it into your heart. I'm not kind of saying it's either or here. But if it just stops at your head. Then you've missed the point. There's something though we need to add to this picture. Notice that even though this man is active in trying to learn the word, in seeking after God's will, in seeking to know the word of God, it's God who he wants to teach him. Have a look at verse 12. He says, Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. In the Bible, God's word is the means by which he does things. It's his instrument. It's the way God acts is by through his word. I mean, of course, you remember, how does he create? With a backhoe? using architects and builders. No, by his word he creates. By his word. How does Jesus perform miracles? By commanding things to happen. How does, what, what does God do? How does God act in the world? He acts by his word. Um, we hear in Hebrews, of course, that God's word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's dynamic, God's word. It's not static, it's not flat on a page. It's a living and dynamic thing, this word. A friend of mine, um, uh, who I'll introduce you to here, this is Ashley Null, he's a professor of church history. Um, and uh, that's a good photo of him, actually. Uh, Ashley, uh, I co-taught a, a course on Thomas Cranmer. He's an expert on Thomas Cranmer. I'm, I've, I'm sorry, this is my Angl- I'm an Anglican, this is my Anglican bit for the day. Uh, Thomas Cranmer is his great hero, uh, of course, a great martyr for the faith, so uh, and an Archbishop of Canterbury to boot, uh, you know, creator of the Anglican Prayer Book and, uh, and all the rest of it. Uh, Ashley tells me that um, that you can sum up the great Protestant teaching of the Word of God, the great teaching of the Word of God that was recovered in the 16th century by by saying that God's Word it tells us. But not just tells us, not just tells us stuff, it tells us information about God. But God's word is his active instrument to turn us, to turn us as people, to, to lead us back to him. And then it's God's instrument to tether us to himself, to bind us to himself, to keep us close to him. And I've, uh, I've never forgotten Ashley telling me this, and so I thought... If you could remember Ashley's face, you might also remember, turn, uh, uh, tell us, turn us and tether us. God's instrument, not merely to give us information. That wouldn't be enough because we human beings are weak. Our instrument to show us that we're sinful and then to turn us to himself. But in one sense, that's not enough either. It's his instrument to bring us into his very family, to make us, so he will be our God and we will be his people. In his words, you see, we actually encounter him. We actually meet God himself and God works in us as we read it, changing us to be more like him and binding us to himself, being close to us. It's powerful, this word. And you can begin to see why this guy loves it so much because it isn't a set of rules that he can't ever keep. In this word, he finds not only a mirror to show him what he's really like and show him how much he needs God's help, 
but he finds the power to turn him to God, to turn his life around and to bind him to God, to keep him walking God's way. How can a man keep his way pure? How can someone live a life that is pure? By the word of God living in them because it's God's active power to change and transform and keep us in his hand. I think sometimes we read God's word a little bit as if it's a word of condemnation. We read it as if it only has that first function to sort of show us how bad we are. I have to say Christians have a tendency to enjoy feeling bad sometimes. As a preacher, I don't know if any other preachers here have had this experience, but the sermons you get the most applause for are the ones where you tell people how bad they are. So, you, you know, if I preach, I remember this, I preached a sermon, uh, you know, sort of really hitting my congregation uh, when I was a pastor in, in a congregation, really hitting my congregation for some, uh, for some uh, apparent sins I thought were uh, necessary to address and I, I wouldn't hold back from doing that. I think that was an important thing. But at the door you get the warm handshake. That was the best sermon you've done all year. Thank you, thank you. I feel terrible. That's a necessary thing we need to do. We need to hear hard words and God's word gives us hard words. But God's word is a word of grace. It's a word of, which should produce in us joy and relief and delight. It's God's word telling us that he is close to us and that he is powerful and mighty to save. So next time your preacher preaches a sermon that's actually good news, say that was the best. <laughs> I'm delighted. I'm relieved. I'm overjoyed. Encourage them. And so the word in the heart bursts out through delighted lips. That's what happens in the rest of this little section. The word now put in his heart is not a word of despair. It's not a word of, oh, I'm just what a worm I am, it's a word which then results in praise, doesn't it? In the second half of our passage we can see the psalmist just can't contain himself. He's filled with the word of God and he overflows in happy praise to, the word, to, to God himself. He puts the laws that come from the mouth of God into his own mouth and he recounts them, speaking them aloud to himself. That's verse 13, isn't it? With my lips I recount. I just go over that law because I remember how gracious it is. How that is my lifeblood. How is that? That's that's God's power to turn and change and tether me to Himself. To turn and uh, to tell and to, to what's the second thing? Uh, and turn and, and tether. Thank you. I, I knew I'd never forget it. Um, he rejoices in verse 14 in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. Oh, can you imagine great riches? Can you imagine how happy that might... I mean, I think sometimes we comfort ourselves saying the rich aren't any... You know, they're not very happy. But... I really believe that. You know, don't you wish sometimes that you, you, you had some relative you'd never met who would finally die and then leave you a lot of money? And off you... It'd be just... You'd delight, wouldn't you? Your worries would be over. You could be generous and popular. You could, you could really have the pleasures you need to have, you know, that life affords. You could, you, could, you could pay off the loan that's hanging over you like the sword of Damocles. I just took out a loan about three months ago. <laughs> and interest rates have gone up. I now understand how Australia, the rest of Australia lives, <laughs> having avoided this terrible fate. Delight in riches. Be free. Ah, that's nothing. He says, delight, I delight in the word of God like that, with that kind of freedom and, and, and pleasure and, and And why wouldn't he, knowing that these words contain not condemnation but life? Now the word meditate in verse 15 distracts us a little bit because I think this is what we think when we think meditate. Is this what you think? Um, that's not me, by the way. Um, but we, we are used to associating the word meditate with Eastern practice, with uh, sort of Eastern religion. And what you do when you meditate in Eastern religion, of course, is you clear your mind 
of thoughts, right, don't you? You contemplate the sound of one hand clapping, which is something like that, I think, or, um, or, or a tree that falls in the forest when no one's hearing it, or, or you use a mantra, don't you, a word, um, a word like om, which is a, only a word in that it's a not a word. It's a word designed to clear your mind of words, to make you non-verbal because the power of the creation, or the power of the word, the divinity is only its contact. We need to be, we're, we're distracted by words and we need to contact divine things by clearing away words because God in that system speaks wordlessly. In biblical faith, there is certainly a room for solitary contemplation, solitary prayer and solitary contemplation. But in the Bible, meditation is an inescapably verbal thing. It's meditating on the word that is the biblical practice. It's staring at the words of God. It's always a matter of relating to the Word of God since that's how God chooses to relate to us. It's a spirituality, yes, of the Word. Are you a spiritual person? If you read the Bible, you're deeply, in fact, truly spiritual. If the Bible is hidden in your heart, the Word of God is hidden in your heart, you are truly spiritual. If you are full, full with the words of God and the words of God pour through you and are on your lips, you are spiritual. That's how God chooses to relate to us. It focuses on this text and what it says. If God's revealed to us in words, then the way to know him and to be known by him is not to rid yourself of words, that's to hide from God. That's to ignore God. That's to avoid God. But rather to immerse yourself in these words. If these words have a divine origin, if they come from the mouth of God, then to know God is to know these words. And to know them deeply is to know God himself deeply. And what our ancient poet does is to read these words aloud to himself. Now, truth be told, you know the practice you and I have of reading silently? This is relatively modern. Uh, actually, uh, in medieval libraries, that's um, as close as I could come to a medieval library, um, but in medieval libraries, they were very noisy places because people, when they read, they would read, they had to read aloud. They'd never thought of reading silently. And so when he reads, he's of course talking about putting the words of God on his lips. There's something we miss by not doing this, actually. It, we miss the fact that when he does this, when he puts these words on his lips, he's not just absorbing them, he's repeating them and making them his words. He's making God's words the words that are his own. Um, when we sing or read or recite the words of God, the words, in a sense, become part of us, don't they? Now, they're not magic formulas. They're not like Wingardium Leviosa, which is from... Thank you. Well, <laughs> fine literary allusion there. Um, <laughs> when we say them, they're not magic spells, right? But when we say these words, even if only to ourselves, they are powerful and effective, these words can so possess us so that they become our words. I'm not saying you have one has to recite them aloud like he does, but it's certainly interesting to note that his practice of taking the word in involves him breathing them out again, reciting them, and knowing them so, so much that they are then the words that are on his lips, speaking of the words of God. It's as if the words of God become the script and his life the play. And so he now knows, he now has a script for his life, doesn't he? He now has words which will give him an orientation, a way to live, things to think, knowledge of the world. And those words provide him with those things. It's a shame that we don't do more scripture memorising anymore. I mean, I think memorisation has kind of fallen out of the educational system, partly for good reason. You know, there's Google. <laughs> right, so Wikipedia, you know, you kind of, uh, that, that, everything in Wikipedia is true, of course. Um, you, you didn't? Okay, oh, okay. Um, I'll do more research then. Um, <laughs> right, but uh, so, so we do, in one sense, have memory machines, so we don't need to memorise things as well. But memory, memorisation does really help us ingest texts, and especially texts like th this text, the Word of God, which is powerful to change us. And when uh, I, uh, again, when in my pastoral ministry, 
uh, I ran Bible study groups and I thought that uh, memorization of part of the uh, new parts of the New Testament in particular was a feature of what we did at Bible study. We spent 15 minutes kind of reciting, trying to learn uh, great parts of the New Testament like Philippians 2, Colossians 1, those great hymns of the New Testament so that they would be there for us. You supr- you, of course, if you've done that, you'll be surprised how in times of trouble and reflection and how in moments of your life these words will come back. It's why too that the songwriters among us must continue to keep writing great songs which put the words of scripture into, into music and get them into our heads so that the word of God will dwell among us richly as we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I think that's kind of what's meant there, right? We'll have that rich indwelling of the word of God and music is such a wonderful instrument uh, that we can use to do that. And you know, I think of many passages of scripture I know because people have put them to music. Um, even sometimes the music didn't quite fit the words, but I've still got those words. Romans 8, Philippians 2, again, can recall them because of music. Those are side, uh, side comments about how we might go away, uh, some way to getting that word hidden in our heart that we might delight and we might burst out with joy as this psalmist does. And so, can these words uh, of the psalm become our words? Can we sing with him? Can we um, see where he's coming from? Can you see, perhaps, where he's coming from? We do live in very different circumstances to this uh, psalmist, don't we? But we do have the same God who speaks. For him, the word of God meant the Bible that he had, which was the first five books of our Bible, But even from them he knew God as a God who promises and commands, a God whose word is powerful to create and powerful to redeem, a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love as he declared himself and revealed himself to be. Now of course we know this reality in 3D, don't we? In the past, says the author to Hebrews, we had the prophets, we had the law, now we have the radiance of God's being, Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God in the flesh. We know from him not only that God is holy and righteous and takes our sin very seriously, but we know from him also that God is merciful and kind and will in him forgive us our sins and lead us into all kinds of acts of righteousness. When we come to the word about Jesus Christ, we find that God himself meets us there. And so even more than this nerdy, obsessive psalmist, we have reason to be nerdy and obsessive like him, to delight in the word of God. For to delight in the word of God is to delight in God's mercy and grace to us in Jesus Christ. how can we learn to love the Bible like this guy loves the Bible? Well, I think first of all, and most importantly, we need to remember the remarkable benefits we have from this book. And that's what I've been trying really to get through today, is we just need to remember what a source of great benefit this book is. It's our lifeline. It's our blessing. We have in it an insight into the mind of our Creator, Think about that. We have an insight into reality itself in this book. We have in it his means of telling us, of turning us and tethering us to himself. We have no other lifeblood than we find in its pages, no better guidance. We can't live on bread alone. But in fact, we need the Word of God, don't we? And here we have it. How could we ignore it? How could the Bible be so quiet in our lives? How could our churches wander so far from the Scriptures? How could our churches, church meetings be so bereft of the reading of the Scriptures? I, I speak now of the churches I know in Sydney, where evangelical churches, where the Bible is authoritative and we get merely a tiny little reading of it and a 50-minute sermon on it. I'd rather have a longer reading. Let's have more readings. Let's hear the word of God in our churches. Let's have it in our lives. Not because 
it's a word of condemnation against us, but because it's our very lifeblood. When we turn from it, we commit suicide. We so often live on a thin, pasty gruel, not realising there's a gourmet banquet laid out for us if only we would take and eat. And we complain about it or resent somehow the gift we've been given in it. We need to remember the benefits, the remarkable benefits we have in this word, this word of God. But secondly, it is right to have habits and practices, to develop the habits and practices that help this affair along, this love affair you have with the Bible. I think this is true with uh, being in love. Um, if you're a married person, uh, you, need to, you need to nurture your, your marriage. You need to practice love, don't you? You need to kind of... Um, husbands... <coughs> You need to go out on dates and things, right? <laughs> you need to spend time together and, and put down the newspaper and, and cultivate. You need to allow your heart to grow in love, don't you? It's not merely an instinctual thing. It has, of course, an instinctual aspect to it, but you know you know you love this person now practice cultivate that love certainly here we need to do the same thing it's right for us to cultivate the habits that will help us to fall in love and delight in the word of god just as this uh, psalmist does so that we too can burst out in instinctive joy uh, in delight in in this word make it a part of us so we're rightly afraid of a dry legalism right we're rightly afraid of a sort of um, a kind of have-to mentality when it comes to uh, reading the Bible. The, reading the Bible might trap us into thinking we're justified by reading the Bible, that it's reading the Bible that makes us right with God in some way. But that shouldn't put us off. As human beings, we need all the help we, get, we can get to develop good habits. We're weak and vulnerable. You know how hard it is to start a good habit. Um, you know... Um, we get tired and distracted and bored. Like anything else, it takes practice, but practice makes it better. Now, about a year ago, I started running, um, not continuously every morning, right? I started running. I hate running. I remember at first running, we ran about three kilometres in half an hour, which is no great pace, a friend of mine, and, and, uh, and it felt like I was going to die at the end. I, I, you know, I... I thought I'd inhaled half the smog of Sydney. That's a lot. And <laughs> it was horrible. And, but we kept on. And partly the thing was I did it with a mate, right? Six o'clock in the morning, off we go half an hour. But then one Sunday morning before church, I got up and I had a run. And it started, it started to feel good. How weird is that? It, it, it felt magnificent. And now we run, we run with pleasure all the time. It's a pleasurable activity. And we run 10 kilometres. And I did a half marathon. I never would have thought of that. Cultivating the habit took persistence. Not for as long as I thought it would. It took a, a friend to keep me accountable. But then the rewards flowed. And now you can't stop me. I think the same is true in almost anything, any habit we would seek to cultivate. I think this is true also of the Bible. You've got other people next to you for a reason. Read the Bible with someone, with someone or, or more, you know, with, a, with a group. Or keep each other accountable for your private Bible reading. That's okay. There's no shame in that. Keep going. And then develop and cultivate the habits and I think you will find that in fact your love for the Bible develops. Like anything else, the reading of the Bible takes practice and practice will make it all better. Um, I'd like also to say, uh, um, particularly for um, people uh, who are living in family arrangements, who, uh, particularly to leaders of households, um, try and get the, let's get the Bible open in the family. Let's help our children become used to the Word of God and, and just that the Word of God is part of their daily life, just as mealtimes are, just as watching bad TV is just as playing on the computer. Make it part of the routine of the family. Um, that's one of the great things the reformers told, uh, got for us. First of all, they got the Bible translated for us so that we could read it. Bizarrely, it hadn't been translated into the language of the people for years and years. But then Luther and Calvin and the others, they said, fathers in particular, you're responsible 
for the, the word of God being open in your households. Let's get busy with that. And they helped, they, they, um, they helped and encouraged people to do that. And I think that's a wonderful example for us of how the word of God would not just um, soak into us individually, but soak into, into us at the family level as well as uh, in, in our church lives too. Um, now, Chris, do we want to, would people like to ask questions or make some comments at that point? Have we got time for a little bit of that? And uh, then I'll pray at the end. Yeah. So um, perhaps some received, you could uh, share some received wisdom on that, ask some questions, make some comments, share personal testimony, um, etc. Uh, love to hear from you. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, again, we're at the level of practicality here, so there's not, in one sense, there's not a right or wrong answer, um, but there's wise and unwise answers, isn't there? Um, the question is, what, um, with overheads in church, what's the role of the Bible in the pew? Um, and there are, a couple of, there are a couple of ways to go here. I think um, in our church, our minister would like us to get rid of the pew Bibles so that we brought our own Bibles because um, that's a terrific practice um, for people. Um, it, it, it shows that the Bi- you, you, you actually got a Bible, first of all, <laughs> and, um, and you're, you're using it. You know, it's, it's not on the shelf. It kind of gets that Bible off the shelf and it becomes that book. And also, this something about the human mind. Do you know how you can remember where something is on a page? Yeah. So you, you remember, you don't remember the chapter and verse, but you remember on the top left-hand corner, about three pages into Ephesians. Yeah, yeah, that. It doesn't get you far in theological college, I've got to say, just in case you're thinking. Um, <laughs> but it's on the top left-hand corner. Um, but there's something about using your own copy of the Scriptures, which is a marvellous gift that we have here in the Western world that really, that really is a, a, a helpful practice. The, the downside is, is of course, um, and, and you can have the text on, on an overhead uh, screen uh, for visitors and what have you. The, the downside would be if there's no, if the overhead screen isn't, um, if people are relying on that, uh, then they probably wouldn't bring their Bibles either. And the other thing which is a downside of that is the fact that um, we then just preach and talk about that one excerpted passage and we're not, a preacher's not then encouraged to kind of cross-reference in their preaching to see how the whole sweep of the Bible actually makes sense together as a whole. So the danger will be that I, as a preacher, think, well, I've only got that text there, I'm not going to take you anywhere else. Um, and so our familiarity with the whole scriptures is perhaps reduced. But there are questions for, uh, that's kind of tin tax. Is that kind of, it's um, probably an essay when a short comment would have done, but um, there you go. Yes? Ah, yeah, go on. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That, that's a that's a brilliant comment. Thank you. So the comment there was uh, that you can see Jesus. These are Jesus's words. And actually, um, one key to a full reading of the Psalms, I think, is to is to do that. Just to say, these words are the Psalms of who? They're the Psalms of David, as we call them. This one wasn't, I don't think, written by David, but they're they're ascribed to him, they're kind of linked to him and Jesus as David's son in so many ways fulfills what the Psalms are talking about and often they are. They're sort of the, and Jesus quotes the Psalms so often, as do the apostles. Yeah, and indeed. Yeah. Well, in the temptation scenes? He, of course. How, does he, how, does he, how do you answer the devil? Muscles? <laughs> No, by quoting the word of God in him. So, yeah. Yeah. 
Yes, so the question is, um, how, how do I know when I'm, I'm delighting enough in the Word of God? And the, in one sense, I want to say that's the wrong question to ask. It's a, the delight that he has is, a, is an instinctive response to, to what the Word of God is. Um, and... Uh, he, there's no, there's no particular, there's no rule given us to us in Scripture about how much Scripture you are to read and how often you are to read the Bible. Um, there's quite a lot of uh, talk in the in the Bible about uh, and modelling of the way that people poured over the Scriptures and read it, you know, in, in the Psalms too, sort of went to it daily. But I don't think these are rules so much as instinctive responses. Um, so I don't think there's an answer to the question how much. Um, in one sense, uh, the, the question is an emotion. That the, the delighting is an emotion, not a how much, isn't it? So um, uh, keep going and reap the rewards. I'd say. <laughs> yeah, there's more to say probably there. Yeah, We've got time for one more, mate. One more. Yes. Thanks. Sir. I mean, I, I stand before you as, uh, as a fellow struggler. I, I, I mean, I, I actually gave these talks last week and uh, I was coming away on the Friday night and very busy trying to get away. Uh, takeaway night at the Jensen household. TV's on around dinner. Very rarely, got to say, just in case anyone's upset. Um, so there we are. And my three-year-old says, Bible story, Dad. <sighs> got me. <laughs> so I'm off to go and speak about how to read the Bible a lot. And my three-year-olds reminded me. Well, thank you. Um, so, yeah. And uh, I, as I say, there's one there's one model that is the kind of reading the Bible around the table, etc. But there are many other ways of doing it. There doesn't have to be that. It could be many other ways that uh, the Bible plays a role in in your everyday life um, and soaks in. Um, and things will be different at different times. You know, our children are all different ages, and so really the uh, Jesus Storybook Bible, which is excellent. Has anyone seen the Jesus Storybook Bible? Yeah, um, really excellent family Bible. A great gift to anyone with kids, by the way. Um, and uh, but it doesn't really do it for my 12-year-old at the moment, so I've got to make other arrangements for him. Um, but that's that's just the, the the kind of up and down of daily life, isn't it? Yeah. So thank you for that. That was uh, terrific. And, and I'm encouraged to go back home and persist, <laughs> having said to, you know. Um, tiredness is the great victim for family life, if that's you know, where you are, um, of course. So we've got a battle against that. Okay, I'm sure we'll have more to, more to talk about. I'm looking forward to getting to know you and, um, and to hearing more from you as well. But let's uh, finish by, by praying and for asking God's help uh, in all of these things. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we, we praise you for your gracious word to us that um, by that word you are near to us, not far. 
and uh, that that word is uh, a word that is utterly trustworthy and true um, as a word that never fails it's a word in which um, you come close to us um, we pray that you would you would teach us in it we pray that you would put that word on our lips we pray that you would make it easy for us to develop habits uh, and to delight in your words Father that uh, we see in it the remarkable benefits that uh, you, the remarkable blessings you want to shower upon us and Father thank you for a reminder too that, um, that Jesus kept his way pure by living according to your word and uh, thank you for his uh, extraordinary example as well as um, his extraordinary gift in giving his own life that we would be your children and it's in his name that we now pray Amen